This morning, I want to tell you a little story. And by little, I do mean little. I want to tell you the shortest storybook in the Old Testament. There are a few other Old Testament books that are shorter than this one, but those books are poetry. This is the shortest book that's a complete story. Do you want to guess which one it is? Friends online, you want to guess? Anybody want to say it? It's not Ruth. It's not Esther. Go ahead. You can change the slide. It's Jonah. Yeah. The whole book is only 48 verses long. And although I have been known to read you passages that long before, I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm just going to tell you the story to refresh your memory. Some of you may never have heard it before. And then I'm going to read you just the end portion. So Jonah is a prophet sent by God to cry out against the city of Nineveh. What the original audience knew that we probably don't remember is that Nineveh was the capital city of the country of Assyria. And Assyria was the country that completely destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. The events of the story of Jonah are really hard for us to place in the biblical timeline. But what we do know is that by the time the story was written down, everyone knew that Nineveh had destroyed the northern kingdom. This means that the Ninevites are the mortal enemies of the Israelites. And still, God tells this Israelite prophet to go to Nineveh and preach. Now, as it turns out, Jonah is a terrible prophet. Because instead of going to Nineveh, he goes as fast as he can in the other direction. Instead of going east, he boards a ship and heads west. And what's interesting is that the story doesn't say why Jonah won't go. We don't find out until the very end of the book. Is he afraid to go to Nineveh? Does he just hate those people so much that he doesn't even want to be around them? We don't know. Why doesn't he follow God? Keep that in mind as you hear the rest of the story. But God is determined to send Jonah to Nineveh. So God sends a huge storm, and the ship that Jonah is sailing on is in danger. The sailors pray to their gods. They're not Israelites. They pray to their own gods. They throw the cargo overboard, but the storm rages on. Meanwhile, Jonah's in the cabin asleep. The captain wakes him up and tells him to start praying. But the storm rages on. Finally, the sailors draw straws to try to determine who's guilty. Because in the ancient world, if something weird and bad is happening, someone is guilty. Jonah draws the short straw and tells the ship's company his story. He says that the only way for them to save themselves and their ship is for them to throw him overboard. But these non-Israelite, non-Yahweh-worshipping sailors refuse to do such an inhumane thing. They keep trying to make it safely to land. Eventually, though, they have to give up. They beg Yahweh to be merciful on them for killing Jonah, and they throw him into the sea, and the storm stops. Instead of allowing Jonah to drown, Yahweh God sends a huge fish to swallow him up. And for three days, Jonah lives in the belly of the whale and prays to God for mercy and salvation. 
And after those three days, the story says that Yahweh God speaks to the fish and it barfs Jonah up on the beach. He's probably smelled great. Again, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and this time he actually does it. But when he arrives, he preaches the worst sermon ever. Five words in the Hebrew language that amount to, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's it. Basically, he stands on the corner wearing a sandwich board, and it doesn't even say repent or perish, it just says perish. Even though it's the worst sermon ever, the great city of Nineveh gets the message, and repentant revival breaks out. Every person from the king to the beggars, they fast and they repent. They even make the animals fast and they put sackcloth on the animals. They're going overboard. They humbly ask for mercy, but they don't even presume to know whether God is going to be merciful or not. Will God be merciful to them? They ask. And so here's the end of the story. This is the last verse of chapter 3 and then chapter 4. When God saw what the people of Nineveh did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction he threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Literally translated, that verse would say, Jonah was displeased with a great displeasure and he was burning up. Jonah is furious. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's what I tried to forestall by getting on a ship and fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to live than to die. Sorry, better for me to die than to live. So much better if you get it right. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Instead of responding, Jonah went out of the city and sat down at a place to the east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade to his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, it died overnight. So should I not have concern on the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. That's it. That's actually where the book ends. 
with God asking Jonah whether God shouldn't be concerned about clueless people and animals. And why I think this story is so powerful is because it messes with our categories of who's the hero and who's the villain. Jonah is God's prophet, but everyone in this story is better than Jonah. The sailors who don't even know God are pious men. They're praying in the storm to their own gods. And once they hear Jonah's story, they begin praying to Yahweh God. The people of Nineveh, the most wicked city in existence, they all repent after hearing the worst sermon in history, and they change their ways. And even creation does the will of God through storms and plants and worms and hot winds. But not Jonah. Quite frankly, Jonah is a jerk. Did you notice in chapter 4 that we finally hear why Jonah ran away from God in the first place? I'll read it for you again. He says, oh Lord, isn't this what I said would happen? That's why I ran away, because I knew that you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, and ready to relent from punishing. That's his reason. Do you get it? Jonah ran away. He tried to avoid going to Nineveh because he knew that God is so good that God would forgive the Ninevites if they repented. His reason for not going is that he doesn't want God to be merciful to his enemies. And so this morning, we have to ask ourselves whether we have the Jonah syndrome. Are we good and faithful people who love God truly, who pray, who speak out against injustice, which is the main job of a prophet? Are we people who are so deeply grateful for God's mercy and grace extended to us, and yet, deep down, maybe not so deep down, we do not want that mercy and grace extended to our bitterest enemies? What other people have done is so bad that they shouldn't get any mercy. They should get punished. Maybe mercy after punishing, so don't kill them or anything, but definitely punishment first. This story pushes our buttons because it reminds us that God loves the people we hate. God has pity. God is concerned. God weeps for the city of Nineveh. God does not want to destroy the people. God wants to restore the people. Even after they have done violence to each other and to other countries, even after they have ignored the poor among them, those are the two main things the prophets are always railing about, violence and how you treat the poor. God does not punish them. God woos them. In God's eyes, no one is a lost cause. No one is beyond redemption. And that's hard for us to take sometimes. Because if we've been good, if we've made the right decisions, if we've been kind, if we've been generous, then obviously God is with us and against the people who haven't done those things. But the problem is, 
Maybe I should say the good news is that God is for those people too. They get the same chances that we get. They get the same love that we get. They get the same mercy that we get. And sometimes, like Jonah, that just burns us up. Now, as I was working on this sermon, I tried to argue with myself. Because I certainly feel this way sometimes. And I told myself, well, actually, I'm better than Jonah. Because if those people in my life, my Ninevites, if they repented like the Ninevites did, then I would be, I would be okay with God being merciful to them. Would. But would I really? If nothing else happened to them, if no other punishment, no chance for me to gloat over their downfall, would I really be okay with God's mercy towards them? What about all the people they've killed? What about all the lives they've ruined? What about all the money they've made killing people and ruining lives? Whoever the Ninevites are in my life. They just get to repent? Yeah. Just like I do. Because God is that good, that kind, that generous, that merciful, that slow to anger, that abounding in love, and that ready to relent from punishing. God loves us, and God loves the people we hate. Before we wrap up, I want to draw your attention to that phrase that I just quoted. It's the one that Jonah uses to accuse God. You are a gracious and compassionate or merciful God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love or kindness, one who relents from punishment or from doing evil. I want to tell you about some of those words. So what I think is interesting is that scholars suspect that this phrase right here might be one of the original creeds of the ancient Hebrew people like our Apostles' Creed or our Nicene Creed. It may be one of the original statements that they said in a worship context about who Yahweh God is. Gracious, which means helping those who are in physical or spiritual trouble. Compassionate or merciful. It comes from the Hebrew word for womb. So it affirms the motherly love of God, a love which surrounds with care and protection. Slow to anger. Self-explanatory. Something people are also supposed to emulate. Abounding in steadfast love or kindness. This is the Hebrew word hesed, which you may remember I've talked to you about before. It is used 250 times as a noun in the Old Testament. It's also the word that we translate as mercy when we say do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. The adjective version of this word is used another 30 times, and almost every time it's translated into English as the adjective godly. 
steadfast love, kindness, mercy, covenant loyalty, goodness, favor, grace. Those are all ways of translating that Hebrew word chesed. And it is perhaps the most important attribute of God. Altogether, this phrase, God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, it shows up ten different times in the Old Testament. So if you know nothing else about God, you should know this. Now, for those of you who are really paying attention, you're going to say, yeah, but what about that relents from punishing part? To which I reply, make sure you tune in the first Sunday of Advent, November 29th, when I'm going to talk about that part. For now, just know this. God is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast loving kindness to you and to the people you can't stand. Because we are all equally in need of grace. Our willingness to extend God's grace to others is completely rooted in our ability to accept God's grace for ourselves. If you don't think you need God's grace, if you think you're good enough on your own, if you feel like you earned what you have, then of course you're going to want other people to have to earn it too. That makes sense. But we don't earn it. None of us do. The flip side of that coin is that it's also wrong to say that I get grace as a gift, but you have to earn it. No. It's a gift or it's not. It's a gift for everyone. We couldn't possibly earn it. None of us are that good. We must all just accept the grace as a gift. And once I realize how amazing God's grace is for a wretch like me, then I am willing to humbly open my heart and rejoice that God's grace is also freely given to all the other wretches. Thanks be to God. God is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast loving-kindness, period. If we reject that, we wind up like Jonah, resentful and alone. But if we accept it, we're free. We receive back all of the sideways energy that we spend on criticizing and judging other people. And instead, we funnel that energy into the work of revealing God's kingdom here and now. Into doing God's will on earth as it's done in heaven. Amen. I'd like to give you the opportunity to spend a few moments in reflection this morning like we always do. So would you settle in wherever you are? Maybe you're like me and your back's a little sore. Maybe you need to release your shoulders down away from your ears. Unclench your jaw. Drop that tongue away from the roof of your mouth. And take a deep breath. As much as you can with masks on.
And let that breath remind you that God's spirit flows through you. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking a word of conviction to you this morning, not condemnation, but conviction, which is about what you should do. Now, what about you shouldn't be doing? If the Holy Spirit is graciously speaking a word of conviction to you this morning, to increase your mercy, receive that from God. If the Holy Spirit is speaking a word to you this morning about the fact that you still are trying to earn grace, if the Holy Spirit is trying to remind you that it's a gift to you, receive that. Receive the freedom. my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Receive that light burden from the Lord this morning. If there is residual resentment or anger disappointment or smugness in you from this election season? Jesus invites you to release that this morning. Your hands are not free to build God's kingdom when you're holding on to those things. If that's you this morning, would you actually open your hands just as a symbol that you are ready to release those things? I can't see you. Open your hands if you need to. I'm going to give you just another couple moments to cement whatever the Spirit's telling you. Maybe it's not anything I've said. Maybe it is. Now I'll say a closing prayer. God who is love, we receive what you're offering us this morning. We ask for your power to go forward, to be your people in the world, to build your kingdom, to reveal your kingdom, and to show the mercy that you have shown to us. We are grateful. Thank you. Amen.